Would you please kneel with me? Our Father God, we thank you this morning that you are merciful to us and that you remain ever the same, that you are perfect in holiness, that you cannot lie, that you do not tempt, that there is nowhere that we can be hidden from you, that the things we don't understand about ourselves you see perfectly, and that when you judge us, you judge us according to truth. We thank you that you are long-suffering, that you understand that we are made of dust. We thank you that you pity us as a father pities his children. We thank you that you discipline us as a father who loves his children does. We thank you, Father, that you have shown us fatherhood, that we ourselves, in some small and terribly imperfect way, may also be fathers. Our Father, we come to you and ask you that you would meet us this day in our worship, that in the stations of life that you have placed us, we might learn what it is to be faithful. We pray, Father, that you will provide for our needs. We thank you for blessing us with children. We thank you for the birth of jail. We thank you for the wonderful gift of children and that you continue to bless us with an abundance of little ones. We pray that we will be faithful in raising them. We pray, Father, for the building of our future, that you will help provide financially for Mike and the other workers to be able to put it up. We pray that you will be pleased with the way that we train and discipline and love and care for our children and that you will provide the facilities that we need for them, Father. Would you please give us faith for the needs of those who are in pain in our community? We pray particularly for Sally for Nana and also for Glenn and for Rachel. Would you comfort them? Please give Rachel comfort in you being a friend that stays closer than any brother or husband. We pray that you will give her confidence that when Glenn is brought into your presence that she will not be alone because you are with her everywhere and because she has been placed in a church which will love her. Father, we pray for others in this church who suffer because of lack of work. We pray for those who are suffering under temptations that they find themselves falling into again and again and giving in to their desires. We pray that you will give them freedom by the power of your spirit. Father, thank you for cleansing us from all unrighteousness. We pray that you will give us faith to walk by faith and to resist the devil, knowing your promises that he will flee from us. Father, we pray this morning that you will be pleased to meet us in this place through your word. Would you make it powerful, Father? Would you make our hearts believing that we won't go from this place forgetting what we saw in the mirror, but that we will go having repented 
and giving ourselves to new obedience, trusting your spirit to do the things that we are incapable of doing ourselves. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians are different. I'd like to point out that what Scripture means when it says that we're holy or when it says we're sanctified is that we are weird. It's not a terrible translation of these words to translate them weird, different, peculiar, God's peculiar people. And if we are willing to be different, then we begin to see the particularities, the specifics of our difference. And we begin to see the world through the eyes of God, but it's not this cosmic thing where we decide who God is, what he is, what he's like, and look at the world in sort of a... um, sort of a biblical consciousness way, but rather we begin to think and to speak and to, and, and, and to write biblically. Because the Bible is God's revelation to us, and the Bible is very, very specific. It's not a bunch of nostrums. You know what a nostrum is? Kehilgebron. <laughs> You know, or another way of saying it is, it's not Hallmark cards, you know. It's not sentimental thoughts that please the wife. But it's very, very specific, you know. It has commandments, and in the middle of those commandments, bridging the gap between the authority of God and our love for our neighbor and our love for God is the commandment, honor your father and your mother. And then a promise that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. Now, one of the ways that Scripture is very specific is in something that most people aren't interested in. And those that are, I don't know any of them. And that's the question of marriage and sex. Uh, Our world today isn't really conscious of this area of life. It seems to have escaped our world's attention and uh, not, not really to have much to do with anything outside of the church, but apparently in the church it's, it's a very important thing. I'm laughing. I mean, I'm, I'm joking. And so we've been in this chapter for quite a while now, chapter 7 of Corinthians, and once again today... It has to do with sex. And here, the question is about virgins. Now, virgin can have a number of different uh, emphases, but here what it's referring to is actually women, although there's some debate about that given the Greek. But it's not just women, but it's young women who have not yet been married and therefore have not yet been intimate with a man. And it says, now concerning virgins, this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. 
as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting text, isn't it? An interesting part of God's word. Yesterday, I was reading an article. Uh, It's become very popular today for... uh, pastors and Bible scholars to write about all the different ways that Scripture lets us down and foggies things up, muddies up the water. And uh, so this was an article by a man talking about, I don't know, 12, 14 different steps that you should take with any section of Scripture to decide whether it applies to you, to us. Okay, And this guy was unbelievably fertile in these ideas. I mean, he had an idea here and an idea there and here an idea, there an idea, everywhere an idea, idea. And so these ideas were in this category, these ideas were in this category, these ideas were in this category, and then there were some other ideas over here in this category. And so when you pick up a particular passage of Scripture, what you do is you run it through his grid, you know? All right? 
And depending on how it falls out in 13 different stipulations, right, then you'll have clarity as to whether or not it applies to you. All right? Now, imagine running this passage through his 13 categories, you know, his criteria, right? First of all, virgin. Well, whatever that is. I mean, you know, think of Bill Clinton. You know, I mean, we could have a big debate right there as to what exactly the precise meaning and to whom it applies, right? Everybody with me so far? Okay. And then we move on. I have no command of the Lord. Well, (laughs) whatever that means. I mean, you could just make hay while the sun shone. You can go on and on and on about that one. I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. Well, I think we all know what the mercy of the Lord is, but what on earth does trustworthy mean? I mean, is he calling himself God? Who is he to tell us he's trustworthy? We'll judge that ourselves. And so when you come to any passage of Scripture, the first question you ask is, does this apply to me? Or does it not apply to me? Right? And if you happen to live today, you can take the text through the grid of 13 things and have some idea after you get done lining it up on those 13 different scales as to whether or not it applies to you. Now, you wouldn't be surprised to know that these 13 criteria that he laid out had to do with whether or not women should submit in marriage and in the church to the masculine sex. Now, if I tell you that, and then I tell you that there are 13 different things that you have to go through, that complicated grid, you begin to smell a rat, right? I mean, you realize that it's not actually 13 objective criteria. (laughs) I mean, it's possible it would be if every one of them was yes, submit, 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 yes, submit. Well, that would be heaven, right? I mean, for men. And it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that the last two criteria are extra-biblical, outside of Scripture. And those two criteria can trump everything else. Those two criteria are looking around at the world that you actually live in and trying to measure the degree to which what Scripture says will cause you to live in such a way as to attract people to Jesus. <laughs> I guess that means I should be rich. You know, because I think if I were rich, then people would come to this church. And then they'd listen to the preaching, and then they'd become Christians. 
thin and rich. Younger and thin and rich. And certainly have a wife who preaches occasionally. Which she would like to do. And it would be helpful. Right, love? Absolutely. Okay. What's the point? Well, the point is that all scriptures God breathed. Theopneustos is the Greek. And it means theos is God. And pneusos is the same word we get in pneumatic pneumonia. Breath. God breathed. God breath. All scripture, the Bible tells us, is God breathed. And then it doesn't stop there, but it says, and is profitable. Okay, is profitable. And listen, one of the best indications of profitability is when those 13 points in that grid, every single one of them says, don't listen to that verse. If all of our criteria line up telling us that that verse is culturally conditioned, old and in the way, stupid, prehistoric, paleontological, whatever. That's a pretty good idea that that one's helpful to us today. Why? Because our sinful flesh always opposes the things of God. Now, about this time, you want me to say it differently, so I will. I'll say it differently. My, my sinful flesh always opposes the things of God. If there's ever a place where there's congruence between what the Bible says and me, it's a miracle. Okay? It's a miracle. It's grace. That's what grace is. It's a miracle where somehow... In some way, we reflect the glory of God in this sinful world. All right? Now, we come to this text, and I want you to get rid of all those 13 criteria that you have in your brain. And I want you to approach this with hearts that are tender before the word of God, thinking we should find out how to be weird in such a way that we start to give glory to God in a sinful world. Doesn't that sound good? Let's figure out how to be so different from this world that we are otherworldly and therefore helpful to this world. We're not helpful to this world when we're conformed, pressed into its mold, J.B. Phillips says. We're helpful when we're different. Have you noticed that? That when you're willing by faith to be different, with your unbelieving family members and neighbors and friends, that all of a sudden you get unbelievably helpful. Have you, have you noticed that? Well, now there's a helpful man. There's a helpful woman, right? Now, look at, look at what we're reading and look at the first verse. Now, concerning virgins, so here we're returning to the issue of sex and marriage. And he's going back to something he dealt with earlier, which is the question of whether or not it's right to be single. All right? And he says, now concerning virgins, and yet here we know, because he says virgins, and because of what he says later in verse 36, but if any man thinks he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she's pastor, what we know we're dealing with is, this time we're not just dealing with individuals and whether or not you, 
should be unmarried, single, celibate, but whether or not a man who has responsibility for caring for his daughter should keep her in the position of being unmarried, single, or should allow her to get married. We went into this last week. Now, first thing to notice about this first verse is that now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. Now, who would guess in their wildest dreams that that little phrase, that little section of this verse, is where the Roman Catholic doctrine of works of supererogation and the treasury of merit that the church possesses would come from. <laughs> Should I read it again? And then you will know where works of supererogation and the treasury of merit come from. Are you ready? Here it is. Concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. Okay, anybody want to guess? Take the most fertile, creative mind in this whole sanctuary, as far as I know, and that would be Eric Rasmussen. Eric, do you have any idea where it comes from? (laughs) It'd be a stretch. Okay, here's the deal. Here the Apostle Paul is making a distinction between something that the Lord himself commanded and something that he has as a thought, as an opinion, as a counsel, as advice. And so there are some places in life where the Bible is very clear, where Jesus was clear. Jesus said that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself, all right? And so if you were to quote Jesus saying the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor, you would be accurate, and that would be our Lord himself speaking, all right? But if you were to say that concerning the marriage of your daughter, your virgin daughter, I don't have a command of the Lord, but I have an opinion, all right? All of a sudden, you've moved from the area of submission to the explicit direction of God, recorded for history, to a question that may have relationships and and uh, meshing and, and certain things that apply. And there could be a lot of the truth of God that can be brought to bear on the question, but ultimately, the question itself is not addressed in Scripture. And so historically, these things have been called what? They've been called precepts and councils. Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you know that I should have kept talking. Precepts and what? Councils of, come on, anybody know? Perfection, councils of perfection. What does that mean? Why do they say councils of perfection? Well, because because of this. If in your Christian life you obey Scripture where it's explicit, this is what it means to follow God. And so there is some merit that accrues to you for simply obeying explicit commands of Scripture. But some godly people push on past simple obedience, all right? They push on past. And they go into areas beyond these people where 
we're into the questions of perfection. We're beyond simple obedience, and now we're at perfection. All right? And so historically, and you can trace this back to the early church fathers, historically what they will say is that obedience over here is good, but living in conformity with counsels of perfection is much, much better. In fact, it's so excellent, it's so perfect, that when you obey things over here, when you do counsels of perfection, your obedience produces a superfluity of merit. So much that you don't need it. Are you with me? It's beyond what you need. What you need really is over here. It's beyond what you need. And so there's so much merit that that merit accrues to where? Now in the early service, um, I had a facial expression here, you know, because... Okay, I'll do it. Okay, okay. So, so, so living according to the counsel of perfection produces so much merit that accrues to the church. And the church can sell it. And that's the basis of indulgences, the purchase of indulgences. Here in Scripture... Look at the verse, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion, a counsel of perfection. And if you obey a counsel of perfection, then merit accrues, it's put into the treasury of the church, and the Pope has the authority to sell it, to dispense it to other people who don't have obedience to the counsels of perfections and may not even have obedience at all. And so this was the basis of Tetzel selling indulgences where they said the minute a coin goes in the box, a soul springs free. Not a soul here on earth, but a soul in purgatory. Now, I know that none of you came in here wondering where the Roman Catholic doctrine of the works of supererogation came from. But I just love when we have an opportunity to feel superior to Roman Catholics. Now you all know I'm joking. Listen, nothing is new under the sun. It is always our habit to think that we can buy the approval of God. We are no different than the church in the Vatican. No different. Now, how could I say that? Well, what we're really dealing with here, listen to me carefully now, what we're really dealing with here is two levels of Christian. A lower level of Christian and a higher level of Christian. All right? And this is the, doct the doctrine of perfectionism that runs all through charismatic church, Pentecostal church, the Keswick movement, Arminianism, John Wesley's uh, complete sanctification. You, you remember how I, I tell you that an awful lot of money has changed hands 
in the Christian church, in order for you to believe what? <laughs> Do you guys remember this? In order for you to believe that you have break on through to the other side. I mean, listen, if you're anything like me and you wake up in the morning, the minute you wake up, you think, well, I can put off reading the Bible, right? Right? And you remember your dreams and you realize you sinned in your dreams. And remember, I'm just quoting St. Augustine in his confessions. In other words, in this world... We have many tribulations, and an awful lot of them come from our own sin, don't they? How much of your wife's suffering is due to your own sin? Huh? And it is very, very seductive for us to think that if, that if we will buy a certain book, go to a certain conference, belong to a certain church just get that certain doctrinal issues straight in our minds. There's just a be baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, finally be done with the carnal man, any of you in Campus Crusade, okay, that we will what? We'll break on through to the other side, Right? And so, when it comes to our natural tendency to want to think that we have a leg up on other Christians, there are an infinite number of things that we can use to look down our noses at others. Or to get peace to our consciences, right? And honestly, this verse is as good as any other. There are those who just stick with the commands and those... The rest of us who what? Who are very concerned to know the counsels of perfection. Right? I mean, a number of you men are married to wives who are always going to their spiritual gurus to find out counsels of perfection. They're willing for their husband to be sort of the slacker of the spiritual relationship, but they're breaking on through to the other side all the time. Any of you ever known marriages like this? Don't raise your hand. No, don't. (laughs) But you know this, where there are women that are hyper-spiritual and their husband is just muddling along, providing, spanking his children, reading books to them at night, cuddling them, and, 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 and the wife is breaking on through to the other side, right? And he has the role of being the slum dog, right? And, and she has the role of being the other side. And she's known to be a paragon of religious virtue, right? <laughs> and he's, 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 he's a feather better, you know? He probably dozes in church Sunday morning because he just got done milking the cows 10 degrees below zero, and he comes in a warm place, and he sleeps.
And meanwhile, she's writing the Apostle Paul and saying, what do you think about my husband should do with our virgin daughter? And so the Apostle Paul writes her back and says, well, I don't have a command of the Lord, but I have a counsel, a perfection. And she says, honey, honey, listen to this. Listen to this, honey. And her husband then knows what he should do. Right? Right? (laughs) So listen, when I was talking earlier about the Roman Catholic doctrine of works of supererogation and the treasury of merit, listen, there's just no question that if you can find any error in the Protestant church, you can find it in the Roman Catholic, and if you find any error in the Catholic church, you can find it in the Protestant church. Why? Because sinners are the ones who are leading churches. All right? You think about the unbelievable amount of wealth of the church today, and immediately you're predisposed to think I'm talking about the Vatican, right? But do you really think that the Vatican has less wealth or more wealth-changing hands than the book market of evangelicalism? And the conference racket? And what is it all? Well, an awful lot of it is teaching that there are certain things you can think, certain ways you can hold to doctrine, certain churches you can go to, certain habits of life, certain translations of Scripture, and you'll break on through to the other side, and you'll live by the counsels of perfection. You'll be above all of the pedestrian Christians who are over here, you know? People, it's wicked. I don't care who does it, it's wicked. What all of us should be aware of is that there are good and bad things. There is right and wrong. There are emphases beyond the explicit commands of our Lord, which we should have. It is right for us to go to pastors and elders and our moms and dads and Titus II women, uh, older women of the church, it's right for us to go to them and ask them for counsel. I'm not making fun of that. But for, the, for us to turn it into a way of getting a leg up on other people, on our husbands or our wives or next door neighbors is, is an awful thing. Why did the Israelites all go to Moses in the wilderness? Remember Jethro, his father-in-law, showed up at the camp and he began to watch what Moses is doing. You remember that? And he saw that Moses was spending from morning till night every single day listening to the people and then rendering judgment, giving counsel. Why did he do it? Well, he did it because everything isn't clear once you know the Ten Commandments or all the other laws, right? It's hard to know when you have competing interests, right? It's hard to know when to discipline with spanking and when to discipline with words and when just to cuddle, right? You remember me telling Joyce standing at the, you know, we all have different moments in our lives that are fixed forever, you know, Uh, petrified. And I'm petrified at the point where I'm standing at the counter in the office on Pete Ellis Drive by the copier and Joyce sidles up next to me, Joyce Huck, And she says to me, don't you think that Taylor needs more of his father's time? 
How do we know when spanking and when admonishing and when time? Well, often we go to Joyce. We say, what do you think, Joyce? And that's about the gold standard, honestly. Right? There are so many things in our lives that we do need counsel about. And here we see that they went to Paul for all kinds of things. And just like the, uh, the things we read and the things we watch today, an awful lot of the counsel he went to the Apostle Paul about had to do with sex. It had to do with physical intimacy. And therefore, marriage, virginity, all of these things. And so here the Apostle Paul is hitting another issue connected with sex. In Corinth, and Corinth is like Bloomington, San Francisco, New York City. And this one is a question about Christian fathers wanting to know what to do with their single daughters. Now, if we go through this, notice that the first thing he says is, I give an opinion, and then he says, is one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. In other words, he is claiming authority at this point, okay? He's saying to them, I am trustworthy. But he's not trustworthy because he happens to be a trustworthy man. He's trustworthy because God what? God's made him trustworthy by the mercy of God, all right? I think then that this is good. I think. Don't you love that? I think. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. In other words, they were living at a time when there was a great deal of civil turmoil, religious turmoil. It was a time of great challenge that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. In other words, given the present turmoil, the present distress, the present difficulties, I think it would be good for you to maintain the situation that you're in. Okay? But if you marry, you have not sinned. In other words, this is what I think. But if you've married, you haven't sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. In other words, look, there are going to be a lot of challenges to being married. And I know all of you who are married would disagree, but back then marriage was difficult. Such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean that those who have wives should be as those that had none? Well, what I think it means is that you should be able to watch football without your wife coming in the room and asking you what's going on. I think it means that it should mean that whether you get up or go to bed, whether you drive someplace else, whatever you do with your money, that you shouldn't ever have to give an accounting to your wife. You should live as those that had none. As a matter of fact, on business trips, take off your ring. 
After all, doesn't the Bible say those who have wives should be as those that had none? (laughs) Now, you know that's not what it means, so what does it mean? Well, keep reading and you'll see. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. Do you remember how at the beginning I said that as Christians we're to be weird? What he's showing us is that we are to be otherworldly. We are not to be worldlings. We're to be otherworldly. We're to hold the precious things in this life as if our identity, our contentment, our happiness does not depend upon them. Why? Because our happiness and contentment depends upon God. That's why. Very interesting to read dead people. And on this point right here, one of the things that they said was that those who are married should live without thinking about their children. What on earth? It says, as those that don't have wives. Well, because he's opening up what's going on a little bit more. And he's saying, not only as if you didn't have a wife, but as if you didn't have children. Now, why would he say that? I hope you've been here long enough to immediately be able to answer. Well, now, no, for once you got it wrong. (laughs) And I'm so happy. I've been living for that day. We've just broken on through to the other side. (laughs) I was just saying this week that Andrew always, before I think it, Andrew says it. He just seems to live in my brain. Anyhow, now in this particular case, the reason he says that is he's saying, okay, your wife is precious to you. And women, we don't like to admit this, but that's actually true. All right, our wives are precious to us. But children, who are the fruit of our relationship, are precious to us. And so he's saying, have your wife as if she weren't precious to you, and have your children as if they weren't precious to you. You see, what, who, who today would ever come up with that? This is absolutely clear that instead of children being a health threat... I hope you were all listening to the news this week, the whole battle over our president, right, where he finally justifies his action by saying that pregnancy is actually a health threat. And you listen to the congresswoman this week who was talking about how terribly disastrous children are for not just the woman, but her whole family. Did you hear that? Did anybody else hear that? I heard her. It was just fascinating. I don't know her name. Remember I tell you that at the end of his life, my father said the thing that was most precious to him 
was his children. And so we take our wives who are, how precious to us are our wives, men? Raise your hand. How precious are they? <laughs> Yesterday, I was supposed to be gone this weekend, and I came home. I walked in my house, and there's my beautiful wife. And that, just seeing her, was nice. <laughs> and then she was working, busy as a beaver. And what was she doing? Well, she was sewing together a bunch of material. Those of you that have your small group meeting at our house, you'll see it today, I think, right? Oh, and it's gorgeous. And it reminded me why I married her. She's just always making beauty, right? Now, those of you who don't come to church here, let me tell you, I just, I don't do this very often, but I just want you to know how precious my wife is to me. And there's all these little beautiful pieces of, uh, of material fabric, and she's putting them together into what I would say is either a tapestry or a quilt. All right? They're small. They're like this big around. And then they're going to go over our fireplace. It's gorgeous material, gorgeous sewing, right? And I said to her, lover, what are you going to call it? And she said, I, I call it a wall hanging. I said, no, you're not going to call it a wall hanging. You're going to call it a tapestry <laughs> or a quilt. Without a wall hanging. <laughs> it's so stupid. You know, a wall hanging, you know. And then I realized that that's another reason why I love her. She's so completely unpretentious. Oh, I have big words. And meanwhile, she's making beauty. And so I said to her, you know, lover, I can't believe how God, kind God was to me in giving me a wife who has the same taste that I have. And I said, think of all the people who are married to somebody who has completely different tastes than they have. And think how awful that would be. You know, you'd want vanilla and she wants chocolate or worse, bimoni. And then I thought a little bit and I thought to myself, you know, Actually, <laughs> it's not that we have the same taste. And I said to her, you know what, lover? It's not that we have the same taste. It's that you have good taste. And I'm learning. And that really is true. She puts things up on the wall of our house I could never imagine. And I see them there, and I think that wall was waiting for that. And you know what God says to us? You take the most precious thing in your life, whatever it is, the most precious thing, and God says, let loose. And he pries our hands back from it. Right? And then we die. And by the time we die, he's taken our health, Many of us, he's taken our husbands or wives. He's taken our work, what gives men at least significance. He's taken women. He's taken your children out of your home. And what do we have left? We have God. And that's the meaning of this whole section. 
is if you have a wife, you're to live as if you have none. And it's not to commend callous, brutal male insensitivity and selfishness. As a matter of fact, if I could guarantee to you, those of you married to a Christian husband or wife, if I could guarantee to you what will most win your wife's affection, you know what it'll be? For you as a Christian husband to live as if you do not have a wife. Because all of a sudden your wife will see that your eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And if there's one thing a wife wants, she wants a husband that she can follow. She wants a husband who makes a home that's not simply the boards and the, and the pipes and the wire, but it's a home of stability and security and justice and righteousness and fidelity. And so the same thing with your cars. Who owns your car? I got my car this morning. The first thing I noticed was that my passenger seat was moved up three inches. That just bugs me. So as I drove, I leaned over and I pulled up the lever and shoved it back where it's supposed to be. And then I noticed something else. I don't remember what it was. Oh, I know. Yeah, I was in such a hurry to get home, I wouldn't even stop at the BP station on the way home to fill up. So when I got home, I was on empty. I looked at my gas gauge, and it was full. Who does your car belong to? Who does your car belong to? How tight are your fingers around your car? I'm sorry to do this to Nick, but look. Have any of you noticed how kind Nick is to you with his possessions? How many of you have used Nick's pickup truck? Raise your hand real high. Okay, look around, people. How many of you have ever used any of Nick's possessions? Well, I don't think we are getting the full number, but... Of course, a lot of the people he's loaned them to have outside this church. Do you know why Nick lends his, his pickup truck to you? Do you know why? Do you think it's because Nick doesn't care if you smash it or blow the engine? No. Nick cares as much as anybody. So why does Nick loan out his pickup truck to you? Do you know why? Nick does that to discipline himself not to love the things of this world. Did you know that? Nick does it to discipline himself as a Christian man not to love the things of the world. Why do you give money to God? Huh? You give money to God to discipline yourself to love God and hate money. Why do you have people into your home? Why do you have children into your marriage? Well, children discipline us to not love the things of this world, right? I mean, can you imagine the wrecking machine of children? <laughs> They're like a perfect blizzard, perfect hurricane. 
About the time we think we're clean, whether in the house or in our hearts, then we have a child. And then all our sin is so visible. So listen, that's the meaning of this text, brothers and sisters. What it's teaching us is that the way to break on through to the other side is to put ourselves in disciplines where our tight grasp, finger by finger by finger, is pried back until our citizenship is where? Where? In heaven. In heaven. When Mary Lee and I were in high school, we used to go down and hold worship services and gospel services in the Presbyterian churches in Letcher County of eastern Kentucky, south of Hazard. Buckhorn, Chavies, Ison, Blackie, places like that. One of my favorite, if not my favorite, song that we used to sing in those services was uh, Wayfaring Stranger. Remember that song? I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. And there's no sickness, toil, or danger in that fair land to which I go. I'm going there what? I'm going there to see my Savior. I'm going there what? No more to roam. And then I can't remember the last two. I'm... And... I am just going over Jordan. I am just going over home. So where is your heart? Where is your heart? Where is your money? Where is your pickup truck? Where is your virgin daughter? Listen, brothers and sisters, we either live by faith or we live by fear. You know? Have you noticed that? We either live by faith or we live by fear. How about if we live by faith? How about if we live for heaven instead of this life? Isn't that the nature of Christian faith? Didn't Jesus say, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me? For if a man would save his life, he will lose it. But if a man will lose his life for my sake, what? He will find it. Okay, let's pray. Dear Jesus, would you please help us to love you and your Father and the Holy Spirit And as we leave, would you keep us from forgetting what we've seen in the mirror? And would you help us to live in such a way that we are free from the love of this world and consumed by the love of God and the love of our neighbors? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.